This message was presented at the GYC 2014 conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Good morning, everybody. It's a pleasure to be here with you on this Friday morning at GYC. It's a pleasure to be able to open the Word of God with you this morning. And as we do that, I'll invite you to bow your heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you this morning for a new day of life, for the health and strength that we have. Lord, as we meditate for these moments on this great and grand theme at the cross, may you impress upon our hearts exactly which aspect of this message we need to hear today. I pray, Lord, that you would speak through me. In Jesus' name, amen. Exactly 100 years ago this year, you may have seen it on the news and you may be familiar with the story, 100 years ago this year, on Christmas Day, a unique event took place in the countries of Belgium, France, and maybe Switzerland. Amidst the horror of World War I, trench warfare, where it was not a pretty sight and where it was not glamorous to fight for your country, so to speak. On Christmas Day, amidst the horror of the war, something very unique took place. And from one trench to another, some of the soldiers in one trench, on Christmas Eve, actually, in the night, they started to hear the other soldiers sing a song, Silent Night, Holy Night. And it wasn't just an isolated part of, 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 the, um, of the line between the, the Germans and the British and the French and so on. It was all up the line. Many times this happened. People started singing Christmas carols, silent night, holy night. And then the other side, they started responding and singing the same Christmas carol in their language back. And when you read the accounts historically of the letters that the soldiers sent home to their parents, they say that the next day on Christmas Day, as the morning broke, some of them came out of their trenches, putting their hands up, and, and then... They didn't get shot, and they came out the other trench. And as they came together, they spent a few hours together exchanging gifts with each other, showing each other the pictures of their wives and their children they had left behind or their parents. History accounts that they played football matches, or as you Americans say, soccer matches together. There in no man's land, in the middle of the war, when they're supposed to be fighting each other, they were exchanging presents, they were having a good time, laughing and joking, and playing football together with each other in no man's land. And it's a very unique story. If you've never read it before or seen anything, just Google it, you'll find plenty of information about it. It's not, you know, it happened, it's a historical event. And it's unique because in the midst of the horror of the war, you see this, this event taking place that is so different to anything else like it, and it just shines amidst the darkness. That human nature would have some space for compassion and kindness in the midst of horror. If you have your Bible, if you turn with me to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. We're going to spend a few moments in a few passages this morning. John chapter 7, and we'll be reading 
John 7, the beginning of the chapter. In John chapter 7, the Bible says, and I'll just paraphrase the first few verses, Jesus was there, and at John chapter 7, his ministry has now taken place for three years. By the time of John chapter 7, he has been ministering for three years. Now, we know according to the 70-week prophecy that Jesus had to minister or be crucified in the middle of the week or after three and a half days or three and a half years. His ministry was to be three and a half years long. And in John 7, it's three years. And the Bible says in verse 1, after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry because the Jews sought to kill him. Summary, he's up there in Galilee, northern Israel. He does not go down to Jerusalem, southern Israel. Why? Because the Jews want to kill him. So his brothers get together and they say there in verse 3 and verse 4, basically they say, listen Jesus, if you really are the Messiah, why are you hiding in Galilee? Go down and show the world what you can do. And then verse 5 says the key word, verse. It says, for neither did his brothers believe in him. John 7, after three years of ministry, his brothers, his own brothers come to him and they say, we don't basically believe you're the Messiah. If you really were the Messiah, you wouldn't hide up here. But notice what Jesus responds in verse 6. Jesus says, my time is not yet what? Come. My time has not yet come. Jesus understood that there was a prophetic timeline that he was living on. And he said, my time has not yet come. Turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, just a page over. John chapter 8 and verse 58, 58 and 59. And the Bible says there in John chapter 8 that Jesus was there in the temple. And he just says that before Abraham was, I am. And in John 8 verse 59, the Bible says they took up stones to stone Jesus, but he escaped and went his way. They could have killed him, but he escapes. Now we're going to see in tomorrow's message, not only was it the wrong time for him to die, it was the wrong place for him to die. John chapter 10, turn to John chapter 10. And in John chapter 10, the Bible says there in verse 39 and verse 30, 40, therefore they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hand. So in John 7, Jesus says, my time has not yet come. In John chapter 8, he escapes when they try and kill him. In John 10, he escapes again. And then we come to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, and the Bible says there, turn over the page to John 12. The Bible says there in John chapter 12 and verse 23, we see a shift. Jesus is no longer escaping, and Jesus is no longer saying, my time has not yet come. In John 12 and verse 23, the Bible says, and Jesus answered them, this is his disciples, saying, the hour is what? Come, that the Son of Man should be glorified. The hour has now come. We see a shift. John 7, my time hasn't come. John 8, he escapes. John 10, he escapes. John 12, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And come down to verse 28 at the end of this little um, uh, passage that Jesus speaks. He says, Father, glorify your name. Something about the cross. Jesus says, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Father, glorify your name. See, something about the cross was at that moment of history, in the darkness of the universe, the light 
of Christ's character shone the brightest. You see, the total sacrifice, the theme for today is the total sacrifice of Jesus. The total sacrifice of Jesus is a total and a complete revelation of Jesus. And at the cross, we see the Son of God glorified completely. You see, it's at the cross that we see the unfailing love of Jesus. It's at the cross that we see the tenderness and the courtesy to those who were abusing him. It's at the cross that we see the patience tested the most and coming out victorious. It's at the cross that we see the compassion of Jesus. It's at the cross we see Jesus thinking of others and not himself. It's at the cross that we see all of these characteristics of Jesus' character shining the brightest. It's at the cross where we see the heart to save others right until the end when he's on the cross. It's at the cross that we see the serenity surrounding him in the most unlikely hour. You see, when the darkness was the deepest, the light shone the greatest. If any of you have a candle or a, a, a light, when you're shining it, you see the, the power of it in the darkness. I like to cycle my bike to work every now and then. I should probably do it more often. From my home to the office, it's about eight miles there and eight miles back, 16 miles. And in the wintertime, sometimes I ride my bike to work. Now, last winter, I was riding my bike to work. And the problem is this. England lies at four, 54 degrees north of the equator, which means in the wintertime, it doesn't get light until about 8 o'clock. And it gets dark at 4 o'clock. I need to be in the office at 8.30, and I need to leave the office at 5. And it takes about 45 or 50 minutes to ride my bike there because I'm not very fast yet which means I ride the bike there in the dark and come back in the dark. Now, foolishly, I don't advise you to do this, last year I rode my bike a few times in the dark with no lights on my bike. I see some mothers shaking their heads. <laughs> I stayed on the pavements, though, the sidewalks, as you say. My birthday was in July, and my wife was uh, gracious enough to buy me an excellent present. She bought me a bike light. Someone say amen. And I said, I want a really good one. I don't just want these little few LED lights flashing. I want a bright one that can doom, shine right in the distance. And she, and she bought me this really nice torch, uh, or bike light, and, and it says they had like 100 meters visibility. Now, as soon as I got it, I wanted to open it, put the lights on, and shine it in my, in my office there at home. But it was daylight, and I can see the beam on the wall, but it, it doesn't really stand out. So that night, when it was dark, when I had no reason to ride anywhere, I put the lights on the bike, and I go out riding around the neighborhood that we live in, and that light, I'm telling you, it was so bright. As I was riding down the road, if there was a house on the other side there, the light was just shining, and it was like lighting up the whole living room of the house where I was going. I mean, you saw the strength of the light when it was dark. When Jesus died on the cross, it was dark. Every single evil, demonic angel ever was at the cross. Satan has summoned them all. They all got their marching orders. Come here. Leave everyone else. Come here to the cross. When the vileness was poured out on Jesus... Ellen White tells us that demons in the form of men, they're in the crowd, stirring up the people. 
when all this wickedness is there being poured on Jesus, it's dark. It's extremely dark. It's extremely dark. And in the midst of that, the character of Jesus just shone the brightest. Oh, he was patient six months previous, but now he's patient on the cross. Oh, he was loving a year previous, but now he's loving on the cross. Oh, he was kind a year previous, but now he's kind on the cross to those who are putting the nails in his hands. And the character of God shone the brightest at the cross. And so when Jesus said in John 12, Father, glorify your son. The hour has come. The total sacrifice of Jesus leads to a total revelation of his character. This leads to a total acceptance and a total conversion on those who see it. Ellen White says in Desire of Ages, page 83, you may well know this quote. It says, it would be well for us to spend a thoughtful hour each day in contemplation of the life of Christ. We should take it point by point. Let the imagination, there is such a thing as righteous imagination. Let the imagination grasp each scene, especially the closing one. As we thus dwell on his great sacrifice for us, our confidence will be constant. Our love is quickened, and we will be more deeply imbued with his spirit. When we see the total sacrifice of Jesus, it has a profound impact on us. On the day that Jesus died, there were some people who in the midst of all of this, they saw Jesus die, and they testified that he was the Son of God. When they saw the total revelation of the character of Jesus as he died, they testified as to who he was. Turn in your Bibles to our next text, Mark chapter 15. In the Gospel of Mark, the second Gospel, Mark chapter 15, we are going to read there and see someone who testifies... The first person we're going to look at, we're going to look at three. Traditions suggest his name was called Longinus. Longinus. He would have commanded upwards of 60 men. He was a hard and he would have been a tough man. You had to be in his profession. You see, Palestine was a very war-torn place. We'll get to the verse in just a minute. Palestine was a very war-torn place. You see, in Palestine or Israel in those days, if you were a true patriot, the highest form of patriotism was to kill a Roman officer. And so as a Roman officer, you had to be on your guard. You had to be watching yourself at all times. You lived in a violent land, and you operated according to violent laws in a sense. There was a violent people. You served under a violent man. Pilate was the commander. He was cold and heartless. And these men would have served under him, and he would have rubbed off on them. Now on this day, Longinus was ordered to take these certain men and transport them from one location to another. Now, it was nothing new for him. It wasn't something that he hadn't done before. No doubt he had done this many, many times. Take the men from here and take them over there. And so he had his men. They would have been well drilled. They would have known exactly what to do. Certain ones would have taken one prisoner. Certain ones would have taken another prisoner. And certain ones would have taken another prisoner as well. Each prisoner would have a squad of men assigned to them. And he, as a superintendent officer, would have just been watching and keeping an eye on all of what was taking place, making sure that no one is coming to try and uh, release somebody. Because when there's an execution, I don't know what it is about human nature, but crowds love to gather. 
Crowds love to come. And he knew there was going to be loads of crowds that day, and some of the officers would have to keep men, men away. And as they get the men and they start marching them, the procession down the awkward, narrow streets of Jerusalem, they would pass by the city gate, and they would head out to the hill where they needed to go. His men were always alert, and as they got to Golgotha, the men would all know exactly what to do. I'm sure they had certain maneuvers as to how to hold the arms and legs of the prisoners to restrain them. I used to work in a psychiatric hospital, and there they would teach us certain maneuvers that if one of the patients had an episode, so to speak, and would kick off, they would teach us certain maneuvers that you could restrain them with no harm to them and no injury to yourself. No doubt these soldiers knew these type of maneuvers, and when they got there to Golgotha, and they, and they had to restrain the prisoners, one on one arm, one on another arm, and they pin them down, and bang, the nails go into the hand. And as he's watching this, the superintendent officer, he sees it all takes place, but something strikes him, because after they nail two thieves to the cross, there is one man who does something he has never in all his life and military history seen. He sees one man just lay his hand out. No need for the, no need for the maneuver. He sees him lay his other arm out. No need for the maneuvers. And they put the nails into his hands. No crying. No curses. No struggling. Nothing. He's never seen this before. Never, ever seen such a thing before. No curses, just prayers coming from his lips. And as they put the crosses down and they put them up in the air, no doubt for the first time that day, he relaxed. And as they're there watching the three crosses, he's not paying much attention to the one on the left or the right. He has seen their kind too many times. He's seen those type of people all the time, but it's the one in the middle. It's the one in the middle that is standing out to him. This Nazarene there in the middle, who's just calmly there. There's a serenity over him in the midst of this pain. And he's watching this man. He's watching as the nails are bringing ever bigger holes in his hands, as the, cro the crown on his head, every time he leans against it, the thorns go deeper into his, into his head, and he doesn't hear any cry come from his lips. Just peace and calmness. And he hears the words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he was probably pretty confident in himself when he heard those words. He probably thought to himself, yep, that doesn't apply to me. I know exactly what I'm doing. My job is done. All, everything is fine. I was asked to do this, and I have done it. Not quite sure what he's talking about, but he can't be talking about me. This centurion would have stood there, and as the lacerated body is on the cross, it just grips his attention. He was there in Pilate's place when Pilate said, behold the man. And he's never seen anything like this before. And at this moment, as the life of Christ is ebbing out, God drew the blinds and shut the curtains. No human eye was to behold what would take place. And at this moment, maybe he told his men, be on guard. Maybe someone's going to come and take them, cap uh, take them away. Maybe someone's going to come and try and take them away. But then they hear the triumphant cry, it is finished. And Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. 
And in Mark chapter 15 and verse 39, there towards the end of the chapter, the Bible says, And when the centurion which stood over against him saw that he so cried out he gave and gave up the ghost, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. On the day Jesus died, most unlikely of people, the Roman centurion says, This man is the Son of God. This man is a righteous man. This man has done nothing wrong. I've never seen a man like this on the cross before. Can any theologian say something as eloquent as this Roman centurion said when Jesus died? This least likely of men, superintendent of executioners, professional killer of criminals, on the day Jesus dies, at the moment that he dies, this man has just nailed Jesus to the cross, and now, not more than a few hours later, he testifies and says, this is the Son of God. Sermon title today is Three Wise Men. The first one nailed Jesus to the cross. The second man we are much more uh, used to looking at, the second man. We are used to scrutinizing his life, for he was right next to Jesus when he died. He was the youngest of the men. He had grown up most likely in church circles. He had grown up around the synagogue. He was familiar with Jewish life. He was familiar with Jewish religious life. But somewhere along life's journey, he had gotten sidetracked. Somewhere along life's journey, he had made bad decisions. And somewhere, one thing led to another. One thing led to another. It wasn't so much maybe he went headlong into sin intentionally. Not many people do. He drifted that way most likely. He made one mistake after another. We're told in the book, Desire of Ages, page 749, there's a paragraph there that says he made two mistakes. Number one, he made the mistake of choosing the wrong associations. The people who he associated with, maybe he was attracted to them because they were daring. Maybe he was attracted to them because they were risky. Maybe he just liked being around them because they seemed so much fun. But one thing led to another, and his association with these men led him down a crimson pathway. And one day, the strong arm of the Roman law grasped him on the soldier's shoulder and took him away. But we are told there's another reason as to why he, he was led that way. On Desire of Ages, page 749, it says he knew about Jesus. He wanted to give his life to Jesus, but when he came towards him, the priests and the rulers turned him away. He was turned aside by professed religious people. He was turned aside by professed religious people. Don't miss that point. Those who should have drawn him to Jesus turned him away. Maybe your experience today is like the thief on the cross, and it could be that religious people have turned you away from Jesus Christ. Maybe your parents who took you to church, who should have been your Christian witness, but their behavior at home was anything but such, and they have turned you off God, church, and anything that resembles religion. And you're like the thief on the cross. Maybe it is that you were abused, God forbid, by someone in religious authority, be it a pastor, an elder, or someone in your church, be it psychological abuse, be it physical abuse, or be it, God forbid, sexual abuse. 
And it has so clouded your picture of who God is, you cannot reconcile your experience with God's character. Maybe your friends in academy or college or church, an Adventist one that is, it was your Christian Adventist friends who gave you your first drink, your first cigarette, or your first nightclub experience. Maybe it was your Christian Adventist friends who should have drawn you to Christ, who have been the ones leading you away from Him. Maybe you've got a friend here at GYC who's a bad influence on you. This thief on the cross, he's sentenced to die. And he goes down there to Calvary. He carries the cross, and no doubt with him there was a struggle. When he got there to Calvary, a knee hits him in the chest. Someone grabs his hair, pulls his head down, one on one arm, one on the other. And as the nails go into his hands, I can imagine the thief was calling down curses and the judgment of heaven or whoever on these men who were crucifying him. And as they lifted up the cross to put it in the ground, I am sure that the Roman soldiers recognized that this was the last opportunity they had to inflict pain on whoever it was they were crucifying. And I'm sure they had a point where instead of gently putting the cross in, I just in my imagination can imagine them lifting that cross and slamming it into the ground. And as they do so, the wounds widen. And the thief, I'm just saying for argument's sake, it's not in the Bible. I'm just saying for my illustration's sake, he was crucified before Jesus. And as he's up there on the cross and he looks down, he sees Jesus doing what I just explained. He's never seen it before. He sees Jesus put out one arm. He sees Jesus put out another arm. And he sees that cross lifted. And as it's put in the ground, he sees the whole crowd around making fun. And as it's put in the ground, no curses come from the, uh, the lips of Jesus. None of them. And as he watches all of this, as he watches the dignified bearing, he thinks this is more than self-control. As he watches the dignified bearing, I, I, I just imagine his mind goes back to his mother's knee. And he remembers a story that she told him, as all little boys in Israel heard, about Messiah who was to come. The memories come flooding back. He has broken his mother's heart. There is nothing like a mother's heart broken for their children. He's broken his mother's heart when his dad came to visit him in prison. He aged about 10 years just seeing him there in prison. As he's up there on the cross, he knows that his family is going to have to go through the shame of hearing his name being struck off the synagogue membership list at the next board meeting. As he's up there on the cross, maybe in the crowd, his parents were there with tear-stained faces and broken hearts. And he hears the thief on the one cross uh, cursing Jesus. He hears the crowd all about cursing Jesus. And in the midst of all this, he can take it no longer. And he says to the thief, stop. We deserve this, but not this man. Not this man. And he turns to Jesus and he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replies in words that are forever movingly memorable. And he says, truly, I say to you today, when I'm nearly dead, he might have added, when it appears my kingdom has crumbled into ruin, when I came to my own nation and my own nation rejected me, today, when one disciple has betrayed me, when one disciple has denied me, when the others have left me, today, I say to you, 
on my divine authority, when it looks like the end, but it's really the beginning. Today I say to me, because of your faith, you will be with me in paradise. Here, the second man dies with Jesus, and the experience of seeing Jesus die, the experience of watching him close as can get, causes him to give his life to Jesus. You see a total revelation of the character of Christ when we see his sacrifice can do only one thing, but change our hearts when we behold it. Three wise men. The first one nailed Jesus to the cross. The second one was crucified with Christ. The third person is less obvious, but nonetheless he played an important part in the crucifixion of Jesus. He was not from Palestine. He was from further afield. And at this point in his life, he is not a believer. You see, as Jesus left the mockery of the trial that he had had, as he had been whipped with the leather strands 78 times, as his body was lacerated, as blood was pouring down him, as the crown of thorns is on his head, as he's been hit in the face, hit in the face over and over, as he's beaten, as he hasn't eaten or slept for several days. They put the cross on Jesus' shoulder, and he slumps to the ground. I imagine maybe he fainted. They bring out a bucket of water. They throw on him the bucket of water. He wakes up. They put the cross on him again. He slumps down again. In the crowd, men are laughing. In the crowd, men are jeering. In the crowd, men are saying, you know, pick up the cross. In the crowd, one man comes forward. And Desire of Ages, page 742, says he expressed compassion. He expressed compassion. And as he expresses compassion, he is grabbed by the soldiers. They put the cross on him and say, you carry it. Maybe as he was walking to Calvary, he's muttering under his breath, why didn't I keep my thoughts to myself? I don't know. Maybe he's saying, I should have kept my mouth shut. And as men are jeering, as men are bantering, as men are cursing Jesus, he's feeling the brunt of it as well because he's carrying the cross. That rugged wood is pressing against his back. Ellen White says, his sympathies were deeply stirred in favor, favor of Jesus. And the events of Calvary and the words uttered by the Savior caused him to acknowledge he was the Son of God. It is recorded that forever after that moment, he was thankful that he had the opportunity to carry the cross. See, Simon no doubt stood by and on the top of the hill watched as Jesus was crucified. He saw the men cheering. He saw the, the people mocking him. He saw all of this taking place. And all he sees come from Jesus is just a prayer. And no doubt in that moment, his heart is broken and he surrenders it to Jesus. He had felt the cross press on his back. And as time passed on, he said, this man is Messiah. But the point is this. This man did not choose to serve Christ. He was forced or conscripted into service. And maybe there's an application for some people here in this auditorium today. Maybe you have been forced in your religious journey. Maybe your parents forced you to come to GYC. Maybe your parents force you every Sabbath morning to go to church, and they say, as long as you live under my roof, you will go to church. Maybe you are forced to go to Adventist Academy or college. 
Maybe you wish you were not born into an Adventist home. Maybe you want to rebel just because you didn't decide to do it and the only choice you have left is to do wrong. Sometimes we fight the right just because someone else told us it was right. Either way, though, when you behold the crucified Savior, sooner or later it will happen to you. And the Simon was there, even though he was forced into service, Simon made a contribution to the plan of salvation that no one has made since. You see, we never read of Simon preaching at Pentecost. We never read of Simon going to the ends of the earth and preaching the gospel. We don't read about that. In fact, we don't read about Simon after this, 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 um, this story. We don't read of him doing great things, so to speak that we would consider great today. He had the menial job of carrying a, a cold, hard, rugged cross. Not doing something great, as we may say, but seeing the sacrifice of Jesus moved on his heart. He did the one thing that was very important. He carried the cross of Jesus prior to his crucifixion. Three wise men, one nailed Jesus to the cross, one died with him, next to him, and one carried the cross. One nailed him to it, one died next to him on it, and one carried the cross. You see, each one of these three men may illustrate us in different ways. Maybe today you may be like the Roman centurion. You may be successful, you may be a leader, but you have never surrendered your heart to Jesus. Maybe you're like the thief on the cross and because of bad association or because religious people have driven you away from Jesus, you have not given your life to Jesus as well. Or maybe you are like Simon of Cyrene. You have been forced, you feel, to serve Christ or to go along with your parents' religion. Each one of these men, though, listen carefully, they illustrate a step in conversion. One nailed Jesus to the cross. One was crucified next to him, and one carried the cross. One nailed, one was crucified, one carried. You see, all of us need to come to the point where we realize that we have crucified the Son of God and put him to open shame, just like the Roman centurion. All of us have to come to the point where we realize that we need to be crucified on the cross every day. And all of us have to come to the point where we accept the master's work that he has for us like Simon did and take up our cross and live for Jesus. When we see the sacrifice of Christ, it should lead us to recognize he is the son of God. It should lead us to be willing to die to self on a daily basis, being crucified on the cross as Galatians 2 verse 20 says. And it should lead us to be willing to accept the master's work. How many of you here today have realized it's your sins that have nailed Jesus to the cross? How many of you this morning recognize and realize that you need to die to self every single day? And how many of you have accepted the work that Jesus has for you? You see, the thing about accepting the work Jesus has for you, you can't choose it. Amen? You just have to accept it. At the cross, there was another man who was given a job by Jesus, John. Jesus on the cross, the last, one of the last things he did, he said, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. 
It's interesting. Why is it interesting? Because John had a deep desire to do something great for God. He wanted to sit at the right hand of God. John had a deep desire to do something marvelous for Jesus, something seen, something known. His mother also drove that desire. And she said to Jesus, when they get to heaven, can he sit on one side and one on the other side? John wanted to do something marvelous and fantastic and amazing for Jesus. But what was he given to do? To caretake his mum. Look after my mum when she's dying. Look after my mum when she's old. Take her to church. Take her to see her friends. Look after my mother when she's sick and she's frail. And she can't walk properly. She can't shower herself. She can't take herself to the toilet. She can't do any of that. Look after my mom. I know in the first few chapters of Acts, the Bible says that Peter and James, you know, they, they went around. But after the first few chapters of Acts, we don't read about John. He was looking after Jesus' mom. Why? Because Jesus knew what John needed. When you commit to serve Jesus, Jesus knows what you need. And you may say to Jesus, I want to serve, Je serve you there. Uh-uh, not there. You're going to serve me there. See, Jesus knew that what John needed, and I believe Jesus, understanding the character of John, he knew that his mother was best placed to mold the character of John, still as a young man, to be someone that will be ready to be put in prison for him in his old years. So you say, I want to serve you, Jesus, like Simon. You can't pick your job. You can't pick the work. You can't tell God what you want him, what you want to do for him. And then ask for his will to be done. No, you can't do that. You have to just accept the work that Jesus has for you. As we come to a close in our message today, I want to make an appeal. And my appeal is specific and my appeal has three parts to it. As you observe the cross of Christ and you see Jesus dying for your sins, you realize it's your sins that nailed him to the cross and you want to say like the Roman centurion, Lord, I recognize I have crucified you afresh. As you see Jesus on the cross and you recognize and you want to say, like the thief on the cross, I need to die daily. Today, I need to die with Jesus Christ. How many of you this morning want to say, Lord, I realize my sins killed you. Lord, I want to die daily. If that is your desire, this morning, I would like to invite you to stand to stand. The second part of the appeal is very specific. I am not asking if you feel a certain way. I am asking if you know a certain way. I was at a GYC 10 years ago in 2004 in Sacramento when an appeal was made for people to be willing to give their hearts to mission service and 200 people went forward. I was at a GYC eight, year, uh, eight years ago, two years after that, and I sat there uh, in a room with the president of AFM and asked him, of those 200 people that came forward, how many of them followed through on their appeal? He put his head down, looked up again. One. One. But I thought people at GYC were honest. I thought if they commit something, they do it. 200. One. One. Lord, have mercy on us. You stand this morning because you say, like the centurion, I've nailed Jesus to the cross. You stand this morning because you say, like the thief, I want to be crucified on the cross with Christ. Third part of the appeal is very specific. And this morning, you know 
you know that Jesus is calling you to work for him. Now, there's many different types of ways you can work for Jesus, but the appeal I'm going to mention this morning, you will feel God is calling you. You know God is calling you to work for him in some mission field, far away or at home. And you want to say to God, Lord, like Simon, I will take up the cross and I'll do my master's work. There may be other ones of you though, and you feel this morning, you know in your heart that you need to sacrifice wherever you're going and whatever you're doing to get some training to share the gospel. Maybe it's a short-term training. I know in the booth hall, there's a plethora of booths that will teach you how to share the gospel. Maybe you've had short-term training and the Lord is calling you to go for long-term training. Four, five, six years. This morning, if you want to dedicate your life to full-time service in the mission field, wherever that be, I would like you to invite you to come forward. You want to say like Simon, I will take up my cross and work for you. Come forward to my left side, please left side of the stage if you want to commit to God not just to say you'll think about it but you want to commit to God to say I know God is calling me to change my life and get some training to be a missionary at home or further afield I want to invite you to come forward to the right side of the stage one mission service one training Left side, right side. And if it's both, praise the Lord. Shortly after this, the ushers will come round. But just come forward, keep coming. We just have a few moments left. You want to say like Simon, I will carry the cross and I will do the work that Jesus has for me. I will not pick the work, but I will just commit to do the work. Do the work right side. To go and get mission training. Sorry, left side. Mission training, right side. I get my lefts and rights confused, forgive me. Keep coming forward. Even if you're in the back and you were pretending to ignore the message, but the Holy Spirit still spoke to your heart, come forward. If you're watching at home later on, if you're watching on a repeat, if you're watching at home now and you want to make that same commitment, then make that same commitment as well, wherever you may be. Let's bow our heads, guys. We're going to close with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, you have seen your children respond to you this morning. Lord, bless them. And whatever they may have to sacrifice, that may seem great and in their path, give them the strength to be able to do so. Lord, those who have committed to mission service, I pray that you would take their hearts, take their lives, change and mold them for you. Guide them where they need to go, not where they want to go. And deepen the burden and desire on their heart from this day forward. That the conviction may not fade with time, but get stronger and stronger. For those, Lord, that have committed to get some training, Lord, I pray that you would guide them, that you would provide them, show them where to go, provide them with the means 
that you may bless them abundantly. Even if it's a short-term thing or if it's the beginning of the change of their life's trajectory, bless them, Lord, I pray. Use this army of workers. We pray for your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2014 conference at the cross in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.